When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, what's the point of the UN? As the war in Ukraine continues, the pleas from the UN Secretary General to give peace a chance, well, they didn't work, did they? So we'll ask, what is the point of the UN at a time when Russia holds the rotating presidency of the Security Council. That's coming up in just a moment. We kick off, though, as ever, on a Tuesday with... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. A uh, very good morning to Daniel Finkelstein who joins me in the studio. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in from outer space is David Aronovich. Sorry, are we on yet? <laughs> <laughs> How are you, David? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Now, now, regular listeners will know, I'd like to update on exactly what is on the uh, the sofa behind David when he beams him from home. It's a Ukrainian flag today. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Uh, I ordered uh, a, a couple. I mean, I know it's pathetic and, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's and other people are taking refugees into their houses and so on, but it's it's all I've got. But it's, it's nice. It's, it, it brightens up the place, if nothing else. Brightens up the place. That's true. Um, well, let's start today with um, the sort of small acts of bravery that we keep seeing from uh, from Ukraine. Well, we've seen lots of them from Ukrainians, but um, this uh, small act of bravery from the Russian journalist. Let's uh, remind ourselves of what happened on the Russian TV channel last night. Let's take a listen. So this is the Russian journalist who hijacked the state TV news, shouting, no war, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, holding up a placard. Uh, she is called Marina of... I tried this Shinikova. No, thank you, David. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, she recorded a little video which she's released, uh, which she posted on... Uh, on Telegram, explaining her opposition to the war and apologising for being part of the uh, the propaganda machine. Uh, this, this, I mean, David, this takes a that's a huge amount of bravery to do that in Russia, isn't it? I, I, I'm, I don't know whether to be more amazed by the bravery or amazed that it doesn't happen more often. But whichever it is, the fact is, we know it's incredibly rare. We know it's incredibly difficult. She gave up in one go her job quite possibly any future job, quite possibly got herself into 
deep trouble with the authorities. Maybe she'll be in prison, maybe she won't, uh, but that was a risk that she was uh, definitely taken. So she's persona non grata now in one move, just and imagine her thinking about, I must do this. How am I going to do this? Um, getting that banner together. Then the moment where she actually steps forward. It, it, it's fantastically courageous. Now, of course, it's a courage that can work both ways because people can do these things for causes that we don't necessarily uh, support. So uh, so what we're really talking about is the bravery it, it takes to be a dissenter in a society that is increasingly authoritarian, where the odds are stacked against you. And of course, it has you wondering, as these things always does, would I do that? You know, under the same circumstances, would I have the courage to do that, the moral fortitude to do that, uh, and so on? But, um, and the other thing, of course, that it reminds you is. And it, re- it bears repetition. I mean, um, there's there's a, a site on Twitter which is um, a, a very very useful information site, but it has been taking from the Russian press the um, the obituaries um, and the names of Russian soldiers killed in Ukraine, um, and you see this parade quite often of incredibly young men, uh, no older than Danny's sons, uh, uh, his two older sons, for example, some of them, who are dying in this struggle because of what in this in this invasion because of what Putin decided um and you have to remind yourself that we don't hate Russians we really hate Putin that's a good uh it's a good point um uh Danny but sorry from David but Danny that question of you always think would I do the same thing and I suppose you, yeah. you of course writing your book you're presumably coming across lots of these Yes. Small acts of bravery and and those incidences where you think would I do the same thing? Yes, I do. Um, I certainly you know look at when my grandfather's um, he had a meeting with Goering at one point and you know had to tell the Jewish community that Goering was saying he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't harm any Jews and my grandfather then printed that on the front page of the Jewish newspaper and um, Goering as a result basically they chased him out of the country um, and so. Um, Yes, you do wonder about uh, whether you'd show that kind of courage yourself. I, I, I become, I'm very obsessed with Martin Luther King just because um, the more that you read about him, the more obvious it was that he must have known that eventually someone would kill him. Uh, and for him to carry mm. on um, campaigning uh, was fascinating. The other thing that was fascinating, and I, I wonder what it will be the case in her case, uh, is lots of people might show the courage if it was up to them. But it's often not just up to them. The problem is they've also got families. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've got communities. So, for example, lots of churches, um, African-American churches, didn't like what um, Martin Luther King's movement was doing because it made life difficult for them. It's understandable, but it means that, you know, it's not just yourself you have to think about. Uh, and and it also brings another angle, I think, to the whole oligarch issue. Uh, I was told yesterday about somebody who had opposed the Putin regime and was basically told, you have to sell up in seven days and get out of the country. Um, and lots of these um, wealthy people in, um, in Russia are... <clears throat> you know, not capable or not in a position to show the courage that this uh, lady showed. And she's uh, been an example to everybody, I think. You know, I'd love to believe that in those circumstances I'd show that kind of courage, but I think it would be, um, you know, it would be outrageous to say I would because you just don't know, do you? There's also something, David, about your Martin Luther King's, you know, by the, by the time he was 
doing what he was doing. He had a place in history. He was a high-profile person. You know, the, making this decision to do that actually is is such a it's a you know, the, the risk versus impact versus yeah. you know the risk versus effect, the personal jeopardy versus overall impact. That's true. It's also it's so um, much worse for her personally than the impact it might have ultimately. It's it's also it's it, it, it's also and this is the thing that really strikes me. It's incredibly lonely what she did. That's my, yes, that's what I mean. Exactly, there's no solo act. There's, it's not as if there's a kind of great movement. It's not as if she went out of that door into the arms of a cheering crowd. You know, she went back and waited for the knock on the door is what, uh, is what happened to her. Um, in that sense, what you're looking much more at is the lonely dissident in something like 1984, to, uh, to, to use that book uh, yet again. Um, it's a courage which may very well as far as you know, never be rewarded, not be at all successful, um, and which won't lead to any anything but major disadvantage and, and maybe worse for you. Yeah. And it's that's why I find it so really astonishing. And, of course, it's not just astonishing, but by drawing attention to it, we, we are drawing attention to the better side uh, yeah. of things. It's a bit like the people queuing up uh, because they want to take Ukrainian refugees. have always been... Uh, particularly religious groups and others who've been very keen, but not just religious groups, who, who, who've offered them their homes, etc., to other people. But they haven't done it in uh, as recognition of rewards. It's always going to kind of be difficult. It's it's good to hold that up, even if it's a small minority of people, because it it, it just uh, it just suggests to us a better way of being. Uh, really, yeah, I, I agree. If if I can recommend to listeners Natan Sharansky's book "Fear No Evil," it's about his period as a dissident in the Soviet Union. There's an amazing story in it. He's being interviewed by the KGB, and they try to show him pictures of his wife demonstrating outside an embassy in London, shown on Granada television, and they wanted to show it to him as an example that he. He was a spy to show him that he was a spy but he hadn't seen his wife for years and so he watched this video and then he said I, I didn't really get that I can't understand English can you show it to me again so they then played it a second time but when he asked to play it a third time just to see his wife after all these years the man <laughs> said to him the man said to him uh, I, I see what you're trying to do uh, you think these people will save you but they are just housewives and students and we are the KGB and he told this story when he visited, as a minister in the government, um, his uh, former KGB cell, uh, ultimately having triumphed. So the only hope we can have is that these kind of uh, lonely uh, people who were arrested will one day uh, be he history's heroes. But unfortunately, we're at the stage of the conflict where we can't guarantee that. Yeah, we don't know. Well, um, D David, you mentioned the, um, uh, the the number of people coming forward to, to open up to, to refugees. Let's just take a listen to uh, Michael Gove in the House of Commons yesterday. I'm going to disagree politically and all the rest of it, but I've just had it up to here with people trying to suggest that this country is not generous. And all this stuff about hostile environment... The hostile environment was invented under a Labour Home Secretary. So can we just chuck it when it comes to the partisan nonsense and get on with delivery? So, so we'll overlook the let's have less partisan nonsense, but it was definitely your Labour's fault, uh, briefly. Uh, Leo, Leo, uh, listener Leo has been in touch saying, uh, after Brexit, I was disheartened the UK being portrayed as interested and unwelcome especially towards Europeans. But the public response to Ukrainian refugees has restored my faith and hope in British decency and compassion. Do Finkelvich agree? 
Danny. I don't think we're doing enough. Um, there was a very, very interesting uh, thread by uh, Jonathan Friedland, uh, the Guardian columnist, the other day and about the kinder transport. And what he was pointing out is the reason why the kinder transport was a kinder transport was because we wouldn't take adults. Um, and um, uh, and I thought, yes, very good point. And if you look at, you know, you said, you talked about the work I was doing on my parents. And one of the conclusions is, you know, they were shopping for any kind of documentation anywhere in the world. And ultimately, what freed them was, um, you know, uh, effectively a sort of fake document from Paraguay, a country that was only willing to support that document, provided my, my mother didn't go there, right? Uh, so um, this problem that refugees find nowhere to go uh, is, uh, you know, a universal of history. Uh, it's, it's obvious that we've been much too slow. It does seem to be changing now. Um, but, but my feeling on that is that um, Michael's pugnacity um, was at variance really with the government's effectiveness on this and I think they haven't been quick enough and they haven't been with the public mood. Most people are for some sort of controlled immigration um, precisely so that the United Kingdom can be generous in emergencies like this um, where people are fleeing for their lives. Um, by the way mostly they won't come here they're going to go to Poland they, they want to go back to Ukraine um, my father came here, my grandfather. They, all their letters was, no, we want to go home yeah. at the end of the war. They couldn't. And, and that's the thing that actually, David, if you're going to be completely cynical, which occasionally I am, a, an enormously open, generous offer from the British government would not lead to massive numbers. So you could afford to appear overly generous and still not be overwhelmed, in the words of critics, uh, because ultimately we're quite a long way from Ukraine, um, the people have got more family ties yeah. with other used to pe Eastern European countries. And instead, we've ended up looking a bit sort of oh, mean-spirited. Let's be clear about this. The government was pushed into this, kicking and screaming all the way. Uh, and I, I mean, I like Michael Gove personally, but I thought that performance in the Commons was ridiculous. It's six days ago since Grant Shapps went on a radio outlet saying we shouldn't be taking more refugees because President Zelensky has asked us not to. He actually said that. Um, you know, and to try and pretend he wasn't saying that and to pretend it wasn't incredibly limited and to, and to pretend it hasn't taken ages even to get to uh, to this kind of particular point. And, of course, you're right. You know, there, there still will be relatively uh, uh, limited numbers and there's still a big difficulty. But the fact is this government has to be forced into it. And uh, his, his non-partisan partisan point, well, those of us who said that Britain does not have this great record of generosity, and, by the way, Danny, I'm glad that Jonathan Friedland also wrote what I wrote in my column last week about the kinder transport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm alarmed you didn't notice it. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, this but is still, awkward. I forgot that still... you wrote that. No, 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 that's all, that's all right, Danny. He probably did it better. But when, uh, yeah, he did, he did, to be fair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also, I mean, it. the other thing that is also worth remembering is that... Um, Everyone talking about, everyone asking politicians now, are you going to open up your spare bedroom, is completely distracted from the fact that only about one in four, one in five people who've actually applied to come here uh, through the family reunion scheme, which actually is a total nightmare, is everything I can tell. You know, we've had listeners who are trying to get family. The actual people who do want to come here to reunite with family members, um, that's still incredibly complicated, incredibly slow. Um, but we're not talking about that anymore because now we're asking, are you going to open up Chevening and Buckingham Palace? So is it a diversionary tactic uh it's it's probably worked quite well for the government um uh even if uh, it hasn't actually helped anyone uh, let's now turn our attention to what happened in the house of lords last night 
Um, I wanted to take part in this debate because uh, for, I state my position as somebody who is a, um, a Remainer, but if there's two things that I welcome in coming out of the common market, one is the CAP and this particular um, gene editing. But the Noble Lord was fast asleep for the entire duration of the Minister's speech. He really should not participate in this debate, having failed to take, take advantage of the ability to hear it in. I'm afraid the Noble Lord was fast asleep for the entirety of the Minister's um, opening speech. Well, I had to send a note to you in order to wake you up by the doorkeeper. So, Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, Lord Finkelstein, if you please. How many times have you been sent a note telling you to wake no, up? Never. The reason this has happened is that everyone in the House of Lords is very sensitive about this because of the reputation that yeah, everyone yeah. has at the House of Lords. So, therefore, it's regarded as a really big faux pas. I feel very sorry for um, Lord John of Normal Green, who's actually a very assiduous contributor, hard worker in the House of Lords. So it's a bit of a shame that it should be him. But I have fallen asleep once in the House of Commons, weirdly enough. I went to watch um, the uh, uh, Treasury questions, I think, in the, in the gallery up above, and I fell asleep there, and it got into actually one of the sketches. It was very embarrassing. And obviously, you can't <laughs> control it particularly. But, but, I, but I, you know, I think it's correct that the House of Lords should regard this as you know, a matter of propriety, because you are there to, you know, to pay attention and engage in the detail of the debate. And if you're not paying attention, then you can't do that. So I, 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 I do see why it happened. The worst occasion I've had for failing to pay attention to something was when Brian McWinney had gone, uh, the Ch Conservative Party chairman for whom I worked, had gone on the Today programme. I hadn't listened to it because I was driving in or something anyway, or I was on the tube. I bumped into him and he goes, uh, did you hear that? And he's quite, he was quite a sort of in your face character. And <laughs> Before I knew what I'd said, I said, oh, yes, I hadn't actually heard it. And he goes, did, did, how do you think it went? Well, <laughs> so I said, I said uh, oh, it was, it was fine, no, no problem at all, because I couldn't say anything else. And I then felt worse. Anyway, it turned out to have been a total disaster. He'd got into an argument with the presenter. It was sort of one of those things that went on for three days, a famous <laughs> argument. You know? And I'd, of course, committed myself in the first 10 minutes to his side of the, uh, of the story, which was incredibly, it got increasingly embarrassing as the days went on. And so it was a real lesson to me now. I never, ever do that. If someone says, have you heard something? something or read something like david's column for example uh, <laughs> i'm completely honest <laughs> do you know weirdly actually if you'd have asked me whether i'd read that i would have said yes i'm pretty sure i did because i'm we were always having a discussion about You're this not subject. making this any better Danny. no 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 i can't i, I can't have, <laughs> have you that. ever have you ever read his column do, I always, do you know who he is <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what everyone uh, readers please always read david's column i never i, I clearly this isn't true what i'm about to say but i never miss it <laughs> uh, David, what do you, have you ever fallen asleep somewhere you shouldn't? Maybe really want to daddy's column. But look, all of us do publications <laughs> and we all know that we do publications and we can be as exciting as you like. There's always somebody there asleep. Yeah. Always. There's always somebody. You can do a thing with eight people and one of them's asleep. You can do a thing with 300 people and somebody in the third row is asleep. Some people come to events simply to go to sleep. They find it, so they find it soothing. I do not see for the life of me why listening to a minister's boring speech should be a precondition for taking part in a debate. That's Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next, what's the point of the UN? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, it's almost three weeks since the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, came over all John Lennon. I have only one thing to say from the bottom of my heart. President Putin, stop your troops from attacking the Ukraine. Give peace a chance. Well, that didn't work, did it? And at a time when Russia, Russia is holding the rotating presidency of the United Nations Security Council, what is the point of the UN? It can pass as many resolutions as it likes, but it hasn't stopped a single bomb from falling, tank from rolling on, or child being evacuated. Well, the United Nations was set up in the wake of the First World War in 1945, with the goal to help heal the rifts between countries, protect human rights, and maintain peace. Now it's got 193 countries in its membership. And its charter states, all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. But what does it do now, given that Russia has clearly done that with Ukraine? Last week, I spoke to John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump, who was also the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under George W. Bush. The U.N. is a huge operation. That's one of its problems. Uh, But there are elements of the U.N. system, the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, the World Food Program, and others that are working now on the refugee and internally displaced person problem caused by the hostility. So, So parts of the system are functioning. The, the problem is the political decision-making uh, agencies of, of the U.N. Uh, are completely useless at this point. The Security Council will do nothing uh, because of Russian vetoes. If the Russians vote in favor of something, it means whatever, whatever the Council has done helps the Russian cause. Uh, votes in the General Assembly uh, are completely meaningless. Uh, and the Russians know that. So uh, the charter was written to make sure the five permanent members uh, had an absolute uh, ability to block uh, effective U.N. action, and that's what the Russians, uh, uh, seconded by the Chinese, in effect, are doing now. Um, where do you see America's role in this? I mean, you've, you've worked for several presidents, from Ronald Reagan, you were the ambassador to, like I said, to the United Nations under George W. Bush, and then obviously later... Trump too. America's gone on quite a journey from the, so the George W. Bush policeman of the world going into countries hoping to introduce Western liberal democracy and so on. Donald Trump, very, very different. Take the troops back, America first and all of that. What is the role of, in America, uh, the role of America in a crisis like this, do you think? The, the premise of American policy in Europe since 1945 has been that a peaceful and secure Europe is in America's interest. That, that's, it, it took two world wars to get a majority of the people to see that, but, but that's what they believed beginning in 1945. That led to the creation of NATO and a number of other things. Now, today, peace and security in Europe is being shattered, and, and we are essentially bystanders. 
So I think this was a, a big mistake, and, uh, and, and I think Biden is exacerbating it. I think when President George W. Bush in April of 2008 at the NATO Bucharest summit said we should bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO on a fast track, that was the right decision. The French and Germans blocked it. We're paying the consequences today. That was John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump, who was also the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. under George W. Bush. We're taking a look at the United Nations. Somebody's been in touch to point out it was a slip of the tongue. I know it was formed after World War II, not World War I, uh, which is what I said. Uh, Noel has been in touch saying, regarding the UN, it's time for the mass of the UN to abolish the Security Council. It was just a power grab by the big winners after World War II. Time for one country, one vote, all equal. Martin's been in touch. We need a new structure, United Nations of Democratic States. Unless you abide by democratic and an anti-corruption mandate, you are allowed in. Permanent members, the US, Japan, UK, EU. Permanent members cannot veto. The UN is as much use as an ashtray on a motorbike, he says. There's lots of criticism from America, from Britain too, but Ukrainians have been critical as well, including this Ukrainian MP, Dmitry Gurin. Here, nobody understands what the United Nations uh, organization is. Uh, what, what do we need it for? I understand that, uh, you know, a huge refugee department in the United Nations, okay, they do something. And the United Nations is a political organization that can uh, uh, prevent some humanitarian catastrophe. It's, uh, it doesn't work at all. What do we need it? It's like uh, uh, League, League of Nations after the First World War. Well, one of the United Nations' founding principles is known as the Responsibility to Protect, known as R2P, which is an international agreement norm, if you like, that seeks to ensure the international community never again fails to halt the mass atrocity of crimes of genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. Well, Sarah Hunter runs the Ukraine division at the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. And she explained to me what the Responsibility to Protect doctrine really represents. The Responsibility to Protect is also known as R2P. Um, it's an international norm that seeks to basically galvanize the international community so that it meets its responsibilities to you know, never again allow, um, fail to prevent or halt the commission of mass atrocity crimes. And when we're talking about mass atrocity crimes here, we mean genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. Um, the concept emerged in response to the failure of the international community to respond to atrocities in the 1990s. So we're talking the genocide in Rwanda, the atrocities that happened in the former Yugoslavia. Um, and, you know, it was adopted in 2005 at the UN World Summit, which was the largest gathering of heads of states and governments in history, and can be broken down into three pillars of responsibility. So pillar one states that uh, the primary responsibility to protect a population lies with a state government. Uh, pillar two states that, you know, the international community has a responsibility to support states in upholding its R2P. So, you know, regional organizations, different member states have a responsibility to each other to help them um, uphold this responsibility to protect. And pillar three states that if a member state is unwilling or unable or actively committing atrocity crimes, that the international community has a responsibility to protect populations by taking timely and decisive action through the UN Charter, which means through the UN Security Council. It's one thing identifying the the uh, the duty to protect, but the the responsibility to protect. 
But what happens then when that's not being upheld? Because the criticism has been that the United Nations, in the face of what's happening in Ukraine, and actually previous incidents of war crimes and so on, nothing actually happens from the UN's perspective. So, yeah, so I I can fundamentally um, disagree. So I think that when people are are making that argument, they're expecting, you know, some type of military, um, um, you know, stick-like intervention here. And that's not the purpose of R2P. R2P is specifically a preventive agenda. So if we've gotten to the point where atrocities are happening, then the international community, you know, both states, regional organizations, and more generally has failed to uphold its responsibility to protect um, the responsibility to protect itself isn't, you know, a sentient being. It's reliant upon states to uphold it. And if the states don't have a political will to do so, then it's going to seem like R2P has failed when in, rea- in reality the international community itself has failed. Um, but in, in regards to the situation in Ukraine, I think, you know, generally my response to, you know, is the UN doing enough? I work on other crises as well. And, you know, if the situation in Ethiopia, for example, the UN has manifestly failed to respond. The international community has failed to respond. But when it comes to Ukraine, um, it's been, you know, absolutely devastating to see the conflict progress over the last few weeks, but also quite remarkable to see how the U.N. has galvanized action around the crisis um, in record time. Um, So the Security Council has difficulty acting on this crisis because Russia holds a veto power, right? So, you know, the Security Council brought a resolution to the table, Russia vetoed it, but under Uniting for Peace, which is a, a kind of a concept that hasn't been used in decades, um, the Security Council um, was recently referred the situation to the General Assembly, and Russia could not veto that referral. And in the General Assembly, you know, 141 states got together and voted in favor of a resolution condemning the atrocities in Ukraine, condemning the invasion, calling for uh, Russia to be removing its troops, et cetera. Um, additionally, the Human Rights Council, also in record time, um, met and established a commission of inquiry into Ukraine. And so that means that there's now going to be a commission monitoring the crimes that are happening in Ukraine. And that's in addition to already existing OSCE and different UN human rights monitors that are there. Um, but I do agree that there are some other things that the UN can be doing. Um, but, you know, the international community really has responded to this crisis in a, a swift um, a manner. In, in my perspective. And what about um, Russia's role as a me- permanent member of the UN Security Council? Is that Could that ever be brought into question, rethought, as a result of uh, the broader condemnation from the United Nations and the ongoing action in Ukraine? Yeah, so that's a difficult one. Um, and many states have been, for years, um, and I also agree with the sentiment, calling for UN Security Council reform. There's five key members of the Security Council that have veto power, Russia being one of them, and there's 10 elected members of the Security Council. And there's been a lot thrown around about what the U.N. can continue to do if the U.N. can suspend Russia from, you know, participating in the U.N. And basically it has to go through the Security Council to do so. And obviously Russia is not going to veto or is, is going to veto something trying to remove them from U.N. membership. But that would have to be taken to the U.N. General Assembly. Basically, the U.N. General Assembly can challenge the credentials of Russia's representatives in, in New York. 
And that's been done in um, response to South Africa in 1974, um, doing the international condemnation of apartheid. And it's a UN General Assembly's Credentials Committee basically says that, you know, Russia, along the same lines as as what happened in 1974 for South Africa, they can essentially block um, Russia's representatives from participating in the UN, which would, in fact, effectively block their participation. But this is something that's really very seldom we use, but something that they could do. Otherwise, the the UN can, the General Assembly can also vote to suspend Russia's uh, membership of the Human Rights Council. They are a member of the Human Rights Council, surprisingly, until 2023. So that's something else that the international community um, can do to kind of hamper Russia's involvement in the UN mechanisms. That was Sarah Hunter uh, from the Ukraine Division at the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. We're taking a look but exactly the purpose and the structure of the UN and how it can play a part in the current uh, conflict. Well, Peter Lee is a professor of applied ethics, director, security and uh, risk research and innovation at the University of Portsmouth. Hi, Peter. Hi. What do you, what do you make of uh, the responsibility to protect doctrine? And does it mean anything if a country that's not only a member of the EU, but a member of the, the um uh, uh, who's currently holding the presidency on the uh, Security Council of the United Nations, um, can break, the, can so clearly break the responsibility to, to protect? Since its inception in 2005, I've been, and even before, I've been deeply sceptical about R2P, uh, responsibility to protect. Uh, for me, it's it was a piece of well-intentioned, almost wishful thinking on the part of the international community uh, that came out of those disasters that we mentioned earlier in in Rwanda and the Balkans in the late 1990s. To to give the world a sense of, of, or perhaps the United Nations a sense that they they can and would um, intervene if such tragedies were happening again. But it relies purely on on deceiving yourself that the, the world operates in that way and the United Nations operates in a way that is sympathetic to that. Russia can and does veto um, the previous question, you know, what can be done to Russia? Nothing. You can embarrass Russia a little bit. You can query the, the status of the representative. Can they restructure the Security Council? Absolutely not. And not only would Russia veto that, so would the United States and China and probably Britain and France as well. So. There's a, a big gap between wishful thinking about pro-internationalists and the reality of a, a world that is still governed by individual and some very powerful states. I was reading a piece uh, this week, I think it was in The Spectator, Stephen Daisley wrote, the UN does not exist to stop wars, it exists to hope that wars are stopped, to talk about the urgency of stopping them and to pass resolutions recognising, recalling, reaffirming and requesting that they not happen which I thought was a pretty damning but pithy summation, really, of the situation we find ourselves in. Brilliant summation. And and actually, you mentioned and you read earlier from Article 2 of, of the UN Charter, but Article 51 is really interesting because it says that nothing in the current charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defence if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations. So Ukraine, for example, has the right of individual self-defence or others can help to defend it. But the last bit is interesting in that, in that um 
article because it says, until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. And going back to 1945, when this was drafted, even before the end of World War II, actually, um, the United States, Soviet Union, Britain, France, China were allies, kind of. And this was written, it clearly has a sense that, that the Security Council would have both the military power to stop any um, attacks and it'd have the military power and then it would have the political will. And clearly that all evaporated very quickly at the end of the Second World War. So again, it goes back to what the UN Charter says it's for and will do um, really hits up against harsh reality very painfully in situations like we see in Ukraine. Is the, is the UN then essentially irrelevant in this uh, the situation in Ukraine? Is it that NATO plays a more important role, that actually bilateral relationships between whether it's London or Paris or Berlin and Kyiv are, are more important than, than anything that happens at the United Nations? I did think that an earlier speaker overclaimed credit for what the United Nations is doing in response to, to the, the disastrous situation. I think the European Union um, is, is responding very well. I think Poland and neighbouring countries are, are shouldering the burden in an amazing way. Uh, the, the UK is responding to, to a degree and hopefully we will increase that. But the United Nations... In, in terms of stopping anything, no, the United Nations poses no threat to Russia whatsoever. The only, the only potential military threat would be from NATO if, if Russia extended its attack into neighbor, a neighboring state that, that is a NATO member. That's really the only, the only political military deterrence. That's not to say that the UN doesn't have some contribution to make it on, on the humanitarian side, in terms of supporting refugees, in terms of a place, sometimes it's easy to use the phrase talking shop, yeah. but sometimes there's use for a talking shop where you can discuss some of the practicalities at the humanitarian level, but at the political military level, no, the United Nations is, is effectively a bystander here. It's really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for that. That's Peter Lee, Professor of Applied Ethics and Director of Security Research, uh, Security and Risk Research and Innovation at the University of Portsmouth. Peter, really good to speak to you. Let's speak now to Lord Malik Brown, former government minister here in the UK. He was also Deputy Secretary General at the United Nations. He is now President of the Open Society Foundations. Good morning. Morning. I suppose the exam question of the past half an hour has been, what is the point of the UN? Yeah, well, I mean, I think... The, 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 if you just left it to NATO and the EU in the way the last speaker finished with, I mean, I think he makes a valid point. There's a lot more hard power from those two institutions. But what the UN has done is helped frame this as not just uh, uh, Russia versus the West, but if you like, Russia versus the rest, this 141 uh, member vote uh, in that against five for the Russian side of the argument in the UN General Assembly, you know, I think showed a solid global majority of states, uh, you know, condemning what Russia has done, this unprovoked invasion. And, you know, that's, it's quite right. That's not going to change the course of the conflict or give Putin very many sleepless nights. But it does mean if this thing, as it likely may, continues to grow into a wider European conflagration, it rescues it from 
just being about Europe. It presents it properly as a threat to the global system. And when you have very eloquent African representatives at the UN saying, you know, a, a kind of brazen uh, invasion of your neighbor's border is something we in Africa are as worried about as anybody in Europe, because we've got these inherited rather fragile colonial borders that we've got to make the best of. Um, then, you know, you, you, you got this conflict where it should be, which is a threat, not just to the people of Ukraine, but a threat to the whole international system. And I think that is an important argument to make, and it's the UN where it's made. But as I say, that's a soft power issue. It doesn't take away from the argument that the UN hasn't got much hard power to apply to this. And I suppose just because at this precise moment, Putin has decided to turn his back on and ignore the UN, doesn't mean that it hasn't played a role up until now, maybe doesn't play a role for other leaders who might be thinking about stepping away from uh, the international club, if you like. Well, that's right. I mean, but, you know, look, this is a very bad time for the UN. Let's not make any pretense otherwise about it. The gridlock Security Council preceded the Ukraine conflict, but it sort of reached a new low during the conflict with the Russians, you know, completely facetiously using the council to make completely absurd and fake claims about chemical weapons in Ukraine. And, you know, so so the sort of trivialization of the council following on its gridlock, you know, it really is a blow to the legitimacy of the organization as a whole. And I was in New York last week and heard the term League of Nations as a potential future for the UN mentioned more than I have in a long time. So, it, you know, it, it is fundamental. And the problem is that, you know, this display of hypocrisy and double standards by Russia, and by no means the first such display by different P5 members of the Security Council, but arguably the most, you know, the most extreme we've ever seen, you know, actually sort of casts a pall over the legitimacy of the organization's action on any other conflict. So, you know, you've got conflicts at the moment in in Ethiopia and elsewhere. The UN's efforts to either deliver humanitarian assistance or broker a ceasefire have both been pretty weak, uh, reflecting, again, this divided council that just isn't you know, coherence or a collective demand uh, for shared political action on any of these crises. So, you know, it's a very bad moment for the organisation. Would it it be a better moment if it was seen to take action like removing Russia from the uh, Security Council? Well, I mean, I I think the fact that that's being talked of is important because, you know, in a sense, until now, the debate about Security Council reform has been about, you know, did the winners of the Second World War, are they still a representative group of nations uh, to have the P5 roles in the Council? Do they represent the current distribution of political economic power in the world? But now suddenly an extra dimension has been added because, you know, what happens when you have one of those P5 members who basically tear up the rule book and no longer even pretend to respect the most fundamental cardinal rules of the UN Charter. And so I think it's an important, actually, debate to have engaged. 
the charter requirement to remove a member from the Security Council is a very hard bar to arrive at, and the process is complicated to get there. I suspect, you know, what you're more likely to see is something like suspension from the Human Rights Council uh, as a more realistic, at least interim goal. And, and, you know, I think we are going to see those things. We've already seen the World Bank suspend operations uh, in, in, in Russia. We've seen the OSCE uh, suspend Russian membership. So I think you are going to see a steady isolation of Russia in these institutions, which will build on the economic sanctions to give a further dimension of pressure and isolation uh, to Putin. Um, just finally, uh, Mark, because someone's uh, messaged in, um, did you just say a war in Europe as seems likely? Do you think that this will spread beyond the borders of Ukraine? Well, what, what I said was a creeping conflict. A creeping conflict, I suppose. That is, I think, that's very no, subtle. I think, I mean, I, let me just, if I may, I mean, for that, you know, what I see happening is, you know, that the Russians will win some kind of headline victory in Ukraine in terms of bombing cities into submission, but be unable to effectively occupy the country, allowing space for an insurgency uh, to happen and maybe operating from the west of the country, which they may not control. That insurgency will be armed by the West uh, and by Europe uh, and NATO. That uh, you know, we're, that's already clear that that would happen. Uh, and you know, then the Russians will start testing NATO resolve. We'll start seeing you know unexplained explosions in frontline NATO states, which the Russians will deny having anything to do with. But it'll see a creeping zone, I fear, of you know, insecurity of, of targeting of, 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 of civilian infrastructure in countries like Poland and, and the Baltics. And yes, I think a Europe that we've got so comfortably used to of being at peace is going to find itself potentially an epicenter of creeping conflict. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. Listener.